the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mark Chinetti. It is Thursday, July 27th. Plenty to get to you today. Sometimes the content just sits there for you to have. Aaron Rodgers and his restructured contract. Justin Herbert and his new extension. Full details and discussions about those numbers. And Cole Komet and a conversation about tight ends and running backs and where things are headed and why one position is holding the fort and the other is letting the dam break loose. And then Cousin Dan joins for the Major League Baseball segment. It's twofold. The trade deadline is just four days away. We're going to talk about some of the trades that have happened, some of the trades that aren't going to happen. And then the Major League Baseball draft signing bonus deadline has passed. Dan did all the work on the Major League Baseball draft this year. He's got all that in his back pocket, some of the more notable signings, a couple of signings that didn't happen, and a couple of teams that made some splashes through the draft in 2023. That's all next. Aaron Rodgers has finally restructured his contract with the New York Jets after really months of (laughs) deliberations and back and forth and really the waiting game. It was a process that both sides agreed to per the trade. It was intelligent, it was logical, And we get to a situation where Aaron Rodgers has finally folded a little bit in his career. And by the way, kudos to him and rightfully so. We've seen many of the great quarterbacks do this down the stretch. Some of it because, A, they can't just just flat out can't do it anymore. Peyton Manning. Some because they always treated themselves that way. And that's Tom Brady, of course. Aaron Rodgers has maxed out basically every single contract he's ever signed including the last one with Green Bay that made this a headache to get out of. But he did so, and the Packers are 40-plus on the cap because of it, and the Jets are not. Here's how this breaks down. It's a three-year, $112.5 million contract. They ripped up the the remaining four years on the previous deal, basically started from scratch. Um, You can talk about the pay cut he took. It's real. In terms of guarantees, it's real. Um. But if we're just talking about money left under term, there were four years and about $140 million on the previous contract. We now have three years and $112.5 million. So $30 million lost there as well. The guarantee structure is $75 million over the next two, fully guaranteed. He'll get 36 and change this year. He'll get 38 and change next year. And unless he walks away, that's pretty much locked in stone. It's a $35 million bonus each of this and next year with a minuscule base salary to go with it. So it's pretty cut and dry. There's three years of void years tacked onto the backside of this thing, as you probably know, to make sure that the cap hits are nice and low. And they are. Here they are. It's an $8.8 million cap hit this year. It's a $17.1 million cap hit next year. The Jets have $26 million of cap to deal with over the next two years for their starting quarterback. It's pretty wild. I mean, if you think about it in terms of this, Zach Wilson accounts for more than $9 million on the Jets cap this year. So the backup quarterback is going to cost more from a cap perspective than the starting quarterback. Certainly not from a cash perspective. But that's the kind of gymnastics that can be done with void years, with restructures, with conversions, and all sorts of bells and whistles. Um, Additionally, speaking to Aaron Rodgers, they can't franchise tag him at age 43 after this. (laughs) And and there's a full no trade clause built into this as well. So Rodgers gets the control in uh, compromising some of his guaranteed money, about 35 million from the previous contract. It's uh, 
it's pretty win-win. If you're a Jets fan, if you're a fan of value, this is pretty much what you're, uh, what you've been dreaming of in a starting quarterback coming to the New York Jets. This is what it's all about. Rodgers did the right thing. The contract is outstanding. Now look, this is this is the number not being talked about because a it's for later, it's for maybe somebody else to deal with. But there's going to be at least thirty five million of dead cap on this thing in twenty twenty six at least. Let's say he only plays the next two seasons through age 41. Logical. Makes himself $75 million, walks away from this thing in some sort of post-June 1st retirement. There's still $49 million of dead cap to work with in 2025, right? That'll split into 14 and 35. If he plays it all out, makes himself $112 million and change, there's still $35 million of dead cap in 2026. Again, not a huge deal with where the salary cap is going. And oh, by the way, I think they're going to be pretty happy with having this guy in town for even a minute, let alone two, three seasons. So, you know, this cap gymnastics comes with a, pr- a price as always, but they have saved themselves a considerable amount of room over the next two years to work with. And the price to pay is about 49 to 35 million. We'll see where it ends up depending on how long he plays out this current contract. So that's the nuts and bolts. That's how this works. That's how this is supposed to go, by the way. Uh, this guy has made over $300 million already. He's going to add another $75 million if he plays out the next two seasons. And uh, for all intents, he's going to be the highest paid player in the history of the NFL for a minute, right? For a minute. And, I, and th- that kind of stuff, I think, from a legacy standpoint, matters to Aaron Rodgers. He, like I said, he has maxed out every contract on purpose to make sure this quarterback position got to where it's gotten. He's a big reason that the Justin Herberts of the world who we're getting to now are earning for 52 and a half million a year. He's a big reason of that. Him and Russell Wilson continued to max and max and max when other players were taking discounts. And you can see both sides of that spectrum. All right. There's a reason the quarterback position is as powerful as it is. Guys like Aaron Rodgers did that on the field and in the financials. So we're here because of him. And now he turns around and says, all right, enough's enough. I want to build a super team for my last two seasons. I want to bring in guys like Dalvin Cook. I want to bring in guys on the defensive side of the ball next off season to make sure we're ramped up. Those things can now happen because the QB one accounts for 26 million cap dollars over the next two seasons. Speaking of Justin Herbert, there's a big lengthy detailed breakdown of the Justin Herbert contract on spotright.com. And of course the numbers are now official and now in it is a five year, $262.5 million extension with the chargers right there. I have to stop. I didn't do this in the breakdown because I kept the breakdown factual and not opinionated, but I'm going to, I'm going to speak my mind here. Uh, you've heard me talk about this contract and Burroughs contract and Justin Jefferson's contract quite a bit over the past month or so on this podcast. And the one thing I begged is do not build out too much term. Do not get yourself into a situation where the chargers can control your destiny. And he did it. Uh, he got talked into the triple bonus structure. He got talked into a seven year total contract. I, I can't say it's the incorrect way to do, to do business, but if I'm a starting quarterback's agent right now, I'm looking these guys in the faces and saying, you have never had more power in your entire life. You are on par with an NBA superstar right now who can do whatever he wants. He can earn a maximum amount. He can move at leisure. 
He can walk away. He can literally say, I don't want to play anymore this year, sit on the bench and earn $40 million. We've seen all those things happen in the past 18 months in the NBA. The quarterback has this kind of power. And I'm not saying they should be abusing all facets of their power to the maximum level. But when it comes to finances plus control, I would have loved to seen Justin Herbert's sake. There's the threshold to where I want to get out of this thing and have my the ability to choose where I'm going to be at age 30. And right now he doesn't have that control because he signed through age 31, which isn't crazy. So that's probably what the, uh, the agent folded on. Okay. Look, you're only going to be 31, even if they make you play this entire contract out. And oh, by the way, if they force you to play this out, you're going to have $300 million in your pocket, which is true. All this is true. So I am literally fighting against, you know, the most first world situation in the history of the world. I just love to see these contracts look a lot more like Kirk Cousins. That's all. I think uh, Kirk Cousins has done very well for himself in a situation that wasn't ideal. And by the way, I mentioned this when I was talking about the projected contract for Herbert a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure the Chargers situation is going to be very ideal after this season. I think there's going to be a lot of change, a lot of turnover. And I'm excited for what this year could bring, which could be a very lucrative season from a, from a, a football standpoint. I think bringing in Kellen Moore was super smart. But we'll see. Because after this, Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, et cetera, et cetera, Khalil Mack could very easily fall off this roster and then they're rebuilding through the draft through free agency, which is dangerous. That's dangerous waters. I'm not saying he shouldn't assign the contract. I'm just saying you kind of want to know where things are going to be in the next four years, and that's impossible in the NFL because of the turnover rate. Here's how this breaks down. Let's get into it. Rant off, off the soapbox. Here we go. <laughs> uh, I have no idea where the reports of $100 million in year one came from, but they are very false. Now you want to talk about guarantees or payment structures. I guess we could talk about it, but he's only making 17 and change this year. And that's perfectly fine because he was set to make about four on the rookie deal. So $16 million signing bonus, that's bonus one. There's a $50 million option bonus in year two and a $45 million option bonus in year three. All that's fully guaranteed, uh, you know, along with a couple of base salaries which means $133 million and change, fully guaranteed at signing. That's a big enchilada, okay? It's not the most. It's the third most, but it's big, all right? Only Deshaun and Lamar did better than him. And Deshaun was on the unicorn situation, and Lamar was on a basically free agent situation, right? His five-year contract is a five-year contract. It's not an extension off of anything, including that franchise tag. He never signed it. It didn't exist, so Lamar's numbers are inflated because they are truly a five-year deal. That's how Dak Prescott's contract operates and Daniel Jones' contract operates and et cetera. So the, the comps for a Herbert situation are Kyler Murray and Josh Allen. And to some degree, Jalen Hurts, though he only had one second-round co you know, contract year left in his rookie deal. But those are the comps when we're talking about building out a rookie extension with two years left on your, on your rookie contract. He did very well from an adjusted average annual salary. Okay. So the 52 and five is for the five-year extension. But if we're looking at this thing from a year to year basis, the three-year payout pays him 44 and a half million, 133.7 over three years. It's a really good number. All right. That number is way above Josh Allen, way above Patrick Mahomes, way above Kyler Murray, 
And it's on par with Jalen Hurts, who got 43.2 at that point in time. So we're talking about a really good structure, not only over three years, but over five and over six and over seven as well. So there's a lot of money here. There's a lot of cash. Um, it's a bit of a discount up front. You know, I think the, uh, the way this works out for the most part is the trade-off for the longer term and the triple bonus structure is there's a lot of cash built into this thing on an annual basis. There's really not a discount year outside of 2023, which again, nobody's going to argue that, all right? Because where he started on the fourth year of his rookie contract to where he got is a nice pay raise. So the cash flow is 17, 56, 60, 24, 36 over the next five seasons for 193.7 total, which is the somewhat practical guarantee. However, they also snuck in an extra 25 million of his sixth year that will vest one year early in 2027. That's rare. That's rare. So that's on Kyler Murray's structure right there. Something we haven't seen from a lot of these other contracts. Josh Allen doesn't have that. Jalen Hurts doesn't have that. Kyler Murray and Justin Herbert have a fifth, a sixth year early vesting guarantee that basically says, you know, if you're not getting there, we're going to give you a nice payment on the way out the door. That's a really good security blanket to have. And it brings the practical guarantees on this contract over $218 million. He's the second person in NFL history to have a practical guarantee north of 200 million. The other one is the Sean Watson, who a lot of people don't really count. So in a lot of cases, this is the most lucrative guaranteed contract in the history of football. And I put, I'd put my stamp on that. Uh, this is really well-structured. I'm not a fan of the triple bonus structure. I'm not a fan of the seven-year total, but I get it, <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> you start talking about these numbers out loud, and at some point in time, you just have to cave. Again, even if he, if he plays this thing out in totality, he's 31 years old, and he's just earned himself $300 million more. That's a pretty damn good life. So I'm not pushing back too hard. I'm just saying I'd love to see somebody come in and truncate this thing and get out by 28, right? Four years, 28 years old, make yourself $200 million, reset the process and go from there. To some degree, that is what Dak Prescott has done to some degree. And Lamar has tried. And Lamar's going to make a boatload of money and he'll have a chance to, to get that third big contract as well. And I'm not saying Herbert won't. So let's talk about where this thing sort of cuts off. I mentioned that it's about 193 over five. I mentioned that there's 25 million of 2028 sitting out there in March of 2027. That's still the likely out. And here's why. There's a world because of the salary cap increases we're going to see in the NFL where the Chargers don't have to touch this thing until 2027. Here's your cap hits. 8-4, 19-3. No problems there. That's on par with what the Rogers structure we just talked about. 2025 is a 37.3 cap hit. Let's just assume that the salary cap is in the 260s at that point. That's well under 15%. They don't need to touch that if they don't want to. So no conversion yet for, for three years. 2026 carries a 46.3 cap hit. In four years, right? Are we talking 260, 270, 275 in the cap? Again, there's a world, a realistic world, where the Chargers don't have to touch that cap hit. Four years into this contract, no salary conversions. Why? Because of the triple bonuses. The proration's already built into this thing. So 
they don't need to touch this thing. Maybe for five years, because that fifth year in 2027 carries a 58.3 million cap hit. Now, there's three years left on this deal, which again, I hate. Because it also means the Chargers probably aren't thinking new contract yet. But they might. But they might. So here's where Justin Herbert has to throw his weight around a little bit. Because instead of just doing the salary conversion and taking the $36 million fully guaranteed base salary, making an assigning bonus, and adding some proration down to the next three seasons, what I do at that, at that point at age 29, when I'm probably still really in my prime on the field, is I say, look, I can save you the, uh, the hassle of that accounting because we know where we're going because 2028's cap hit is 71.1 right now, default. So the second they touch that 58, the 71 is going to inflate to close to 80, right? Based on how things are going to go. So let's just rip this thing up and start over. Right now, with three years left on the contract in March of 2027, before that 25 million hits, all right, we can just start the whole thing over. Rip up the last three seasons. I'm 29 or going on 29. Salary cap's 275. Let's make this work for everybody. And he makes himself $157 million over the next four years and then makes it 250 fully guaranteed for the next five years of his life. And that's realistic. And that's realistic because what are we going to be at? 60, 62 million per year at that point, maybe more. I, you know, I imagine that number starts to slow down a little bit in terms of exponential increase, but we're over 60 million at that point. There's no question about it. We're well over 200 million guaranteed at that point in time if the quarterback stuff stays where it is on track. So we'll save you the hassle of the accounting gymnastics and keep some of that dead cap off the books for now. And we'll just transfer over, you know, the proration that exists and go from there. So there's a world where a restructure cap conversion never happens on this contract. This thing goes the next four seasons. They rip up the last three and start over. And, and I think both sides would be fairly happy in doing that. Now, Los Angeles may say, look, the, the, the salaries are bonkers where this quarterback stuff is. We just can't afford to cut our losses early and, and trim on any kind of value because it's 36 million cash in 2027. We can convert that cap hit down to into the 20s easily and, and really have some room to work with and rebuild some, some assets where we need. That's probably how this works because that's how most front offices do business. I'm just saying, Justin Herbert didn't get some of the, uh, you know, the things that I wanted him to get in terms of a truncated maximum guaranteed deal, but he can get himself out after four seasons, and start this thing over. And if that's the wiggle room he can, he, he can utilize, it's a, it's a huge win. It's a huge win. And if not, again, I'm going to go back to this again. If not, he gets five years in 193. Then they do the restructure with two years left and uh, turn this thing into a brand spanking new contract close to 300 million on the extension and 225 fully guaranteed at signing because that's where the quarterback stuff is headed. A couple of uh, additional bells and whistles. Full no trade clause. I certainly like that. And annual incentives. If he wins the conference championship, it's 1.25 million. If he wins the Super Bowl, it's 1.25 million as well. So some team stuff built in there as well. There's a lot to like here. Again, I haven't raved about the, the guarantee structure of a contract as much since Kyler Murray, and I didn't like that contract at all because of player, team, situation, and uh, we see where that's headed right now. This one, 
I love the player. I don't love the team situation. I'm a little worried that the Chargers are going to look like the Cardinals in 18 months. But I think you can. this is a guy you build around no matter what's around it. And this contract says, we believe in you <laughs> quite a bit because of that 218 practically guaranteed over the next five and a half seasons. Full breakdown at spotrat.com if you want more of this. But uh, that's the nuts and bolts of Justin Herbert and the Chargers. And finally, I'm going to switch gears to the tight end market. Cole Komet signed a contract extension, basically on the money, on the dollar to what we had him projected as with the Chicago Bears. Four years, $50 million, $22.8 million guaranteed at signing, 32 for practical purposes, though not really. Uh, this is, for all intents and purposes, a two-year, $23 million contract. There's some workout bonuses built in. There's some late work roster bonuses back ended into this thing. It's a fairly flat deal. It gets about 13 million this year and then 10 each year from there. So, you know, it's an inflated first season and then basically he's a 10 million per year tight end. A I think he's a great player and he may have a breakout season with Justin uh, Justin Fields this year if he didn't have one to be considered so last year. So, this contract is worthy. Uh I'm not sure he's the most dynamic weapon on his roster. I think there are some wide receivers that could have big years as well. And they completely reshevel the running back position. So you know where that's headed. It's a market value contract. It is a fair contract in every regard. The guarantee structure, the AAV, the cash flow, everything. This is another really, really big, bright red flag that this tight end market has completely plateaued. This is an exciting player on a team that has all the cash and cap in the world. Quarterback on the rookie contract trimmed a ton of fat off this roster in terms of veteran money. They're kind of dealing with house money right now and a situation that could look a lot like Jacksonville did last year, right? Bunch of young guys take a step forward and this core looks intact. That's where I think Chicago could be headed, especially with Rodgers out of the division. And they got a fair market contract on arguably their second best weapon. It's not great for the tight end market at all, at all. It's not great for Kyle Pitts. It's not great for TJ Hawkinson, et cetera. So again, I'm going to ring this bell. We've been talking running backs and running backs and running backs, and rightfully so. The tight end stuff is getting worse with one exception. They're still getting the contract. All right. This contract didn't have to happen because you know what else is fair market value? The tight end franchise tag, which has been utilized a lot over the past couple of years because it's a really nice number for teams to work with. Komet didn't even get there. All right. He got his contract. He's got his extension because I think his team around him said, look, we have the capital. Let's get this done. And this is a contract I think we'd sign 10 out of 10 times. Where I'm going to go with this is, this is exactly the contract I had pegged for Saquon Barkley. Precisely. $12.5 million per year, four for 50, just over 22, maybe closer to $24 million fully guaranteed at signing. Basically, the representation of the two franchise tags, but fully guaranteed for two years. You get the security blanket of having the two-year guarantee. This is exactly what the Giants probably offered Saquon Barkley Maybe at some point last year, I think this is sort of what the Schefter numbers said out loud. Barkley needed to take that contract. 
I realize that it's not the top of the market. And I realize that Saquon Barkley is arguably a top of the market weapon. He's also the most dynamic weapon on the Giants. He just is. Okay. He's the best option they have. That's why the Giants, Giants worked hard to get him into camp and get him linked up with Daniel Jones yet again. Cole Komet signed this contract knowing farewell that this isn't Travis Kelsey's deal. This isn't George Kittle's deal. And by the way, those deals are forever years old, you know? So the cap is where it's at. The cash flow is where it's at. And the tight end market is still sliding backwards. This is a step back in that market, but they're signing the contracts. I'm not saying Saquon Barkley did anything wrong. All right. What I'm saying is this is the contract that was probably put in front of Saquon Barkley at some point in time. It's the contract I've been sketching out for him for over a year now, knowing that he is, when he's back to full health, he's a dynamic weapon. They're going to have to take these deals if they're offered to him. They're just going to have to. I realize that it's not a penny more than what two franchise tags would give him. But A, it's multi-year guarantee. And B, there's a contract on the table at least, right? There's a contract in the books, on the table, in our rankings, available for search, okay? Because there's not one right now for Jacobs, for Barkley, for Pollard, three of the most dynamic running backs in the game. There's a conversation about what to do with those players. And those guys didn't take the four-year contract. That's really a two-year deal. That's really just two franchise tags. It sounds terrible. And I realize I'm pitching, uh, you know, I'm making a pitch for something that is absolute trash, but it's not, okay? Just having the framework of the contract in place has to be enough right now because everything else is backsliding as quickly as possible. It's an avalanche. Everything's falling off the cliff. At least with the tight end market, these guys are taking the deals and, and understanding that they can hold the fort down, at least for now. Okay, Dawson Knox, Cole Komet, et cetera. Even Mark Andrews was a step back from Travis Kelsey. Dallas Goddard was a step back from Mark Andrews. It's sliding, okay? The boulder's coming down the hill. But these young players are saying, look, rather than get nothing, rather than just get a franchise tag and they thrown into the free agent market where Zach Ertz and Kyle Rudolph and all these guys got jack, all right, literally near minimum contracts, let's just take the fair deal that's being offered put something on the books and try to hold this boulder off, right? And plateau a little bit. And they have, they have plateaued, but they're getting money. They're getting contracts. It's awful. All right. Cause these guys are very valuable. Kokomet might be, might have the most receptions on the bears this year. I don't think that's too big of a stretch. He might have 10 touchdown catches as well. And Saquon Barkley might have 1500 and 11 touchdowns and all those things, right? He might hit the exact metrics that the incentives say he should hit. But he's getting 10, Cole Komet's getting 13, and Cole Komet's guaranteed 23. That's the difference. And there's no guarantee with Barkley in the next year. None. And the tag might be an upgrade to what he could find on the open market as a 28-year-old running back with seven other running backs on the open market around him, six of whom probably cost $2 million most at the most. So is there going to be one team that pays Barkley $14 million next year? Maybe. Maybe's a maybe, okay? Because for all the Damian Harris's and Devin Singletary's who signed $1.7 million contracts this year, there's a Miles Sanders who got $13 million guaranteed over two years. And that's the reality. So I, I, I know 
that the discussion is real. I, I and I know that the devaluation is real, but there's a very close comp, you know, comparison between the tight end market and the running back market, literally dollar for dollar. Where the top contract sits, 16 million per year, what the guarantees look like. They're identical situations, financially speaking, except for the fact that tight ends continue to sign the contracts and the running backs are not. And the running backs are getting tagged because of it. Now, you want to tell me that Josh Jacobs never had a four-year contract offer? Maybe. But boy, it sure sounds like he was sitting in a car outside waiting to go sign that four-year contract because it was there. So at some point it was there and then all of a sudden it wasn't there or all of a sudden he wasn't willing to sign that contract. There's a couple things not lining up right now. And I just want to say out loud again, the tight ends are signing the deals. Dallas Goddard, Dawson Knox, Cole Komet, Evan Engram. They're signing the contracts and the running backs are not. And maybe there's a bigger stance to be made. Maybe there's a holdout coming. Maybe that Zoom call is going to lead to some kind of unionized, you know, uh, not, you know, mutiny, but some sort of discussion that they want to have. And by the way, yes, they can go and try to get the NFLPA involved and make some sort of amendment, right, about the tag or about their pay grade. But I just can't see two out of 32 owners right now getting in front of the situation and saying, okay, it's something we want to talk about. Because guess what? Every one of those owners right now is loving this. They're loving the fact that they get a rookie deal and then a devalued veteran contract for players that produce gigantic numbers for them and score huge touchdowns for them and hold the fort down in bad weather games through the stretch run of every regular season. They're loving it. Okay, so they're loving the fact that all these running backs are coming down to basically one-year guarantees. Loving it. There's no risk. There's tons of reward. And they're making out bank because of it. So it's a fight the NFLPA probably should be having. Good luck trying to put together an argument. It is what it is. Baseball went through this. Basketball went through this. They, and it took a hell of a lot of restructuring to get the middle class paid again and to get the third forward off the bench making a decent middle salary. We'll get there eventually. It's going to take the perfect running back, like I've said a million times. We'll get there eventually. Somebody's going to reset this market. Somebody's going to push things forward. But until then, guys got to take contracts. Take them. Hold the fort down. Keep the boulder from coming down the hill too far because it's sliding fast in that position. All right, Dan, I just got off my NFL soapbox. It is time to recap the Major League Baseball draft. We'll talk about some of the trades that have uh, gone down and some of the trades that are, I think, pending in the next couple of days here as the deadline approaches, and then we'll uh, we'll sit back and watch the show happen. What kind of MLB draft was it this year? Was it loaded? Was it better than most? Where, where do you want to rank this thing in terms of talent? Yeah, so... I am definitely not a talent um, analyst here, but from what I've heard, um, a lot of professionals consider this maybe the best um, draft since roughly 2013, um, which if you just look down, especially the first round that year, it's just loaded um, with um, high-end talent plus guys who had really good careers as well. So um it was largely thought of as a top heavy draft. Um, there was kind of like a core group of players at the top. Um, it was very clear that they were going to sort of go in some sort of um, order. Uh, uh, 
without too much deviation, but, and, and it did kind of play out like that. So us saying it's one of the best drafts in, yeah, we know, you nothing. know, well over a decade is kind of proven out though, in terms of the amount of money that was dished out specifically. Um, this year was a record um, in total bonuses given out was over $350 million, which um, the, the bonus slot, the slot values did go up 10%. Um, we have seen rise year over year, but that beats the previous record by roughly $35,000. The previous record was in 2019, which was 300. Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, it was a big deal. Million. Yeah. Previous record was in 20, 2019, um, $316 million was spent, but that draft was 40 rounds deep, whereas this was only 20 rounds. So um, that $35 million comes um, you know, with a lot fewer picks um, taking place. So <clears throat> how does that break down? The Tigers were the team that spent the most of that. They spent $17.6 million, um, which was actually the second highest total ever, um, which is only behind the Astros in, in um, excuse me, 2015. And they had two picks in the top five um, selections that year. Number two, Alex Bregman, and number five, Kyle Tucker. Yeah, um, that worked so out. Yeah, so they spent uh, of that nineteen mil over uh, nine million was spent on those two players. Um, so it, that's just to say it wasn't like those two guys were under slot, um, and they still spent that kind much of an money, anomaly so. situation is what you're saying. So Detroit did a lot of damage here over the course of their twenty rounds. Well, it seems like that, but I guess we won't totally know that until about yeah. five six years from now. But it certainly seems like um, you know if history is a precedent. We've seen this before. Teams that spend um, in that territory typically do pretty well in the draft. So um, I think that um, is a point to be taken. Um, the So from an individual player standpoint, too, we, we kind of see saw a number of records broken. The previous yeah. record was in 2020. We, we've talked about this before it was spencer torgelson at just over 8.4 mil um two players paul Skeens and dylan cruz both exceeded that this year and um a third wyatt lankford um at eight mil even made it into the top eight overall so three of the top eight all-time player bonus uh bonuses were recorded this year which is um which is pretty significant considering um really few players went over slot. We talked about this a little bit on our draft prep podcast that despite um, despite the records that were going to be sent, we didn't really see a lot of guys exceeding. We, we didn't expect to see a lot of guys exceeding um, their actual slot value. And a yeah, lot of very guys- often, very often the number one pick goes under slot. You know, a lot of teams try to nickel and dime even the best picks in the draft. And that's, we just didn't see that this year. It, it, pretty much the the big players went over slot. T- can, is there a reason? Do you, have you heard? Is it is it is it we're going to give you more right now and we want to see you get get on this roster in eighteen months? Is it something like that? Is it we're afraid you're not going to sign because options available elsewhere are paying you more? What, what what's the what's the thinking, Dan, behind this sudden? push to get over slot with a lot of positions. I mean, you've got a number here that I think is pretty, pretty wild. 22 teams went over their pool allotment. That's not normal. 
<laughs> I can tell you right now, that's not normal. What's the what's the reasoning? What's the thinking here? So it's actually becoming a little bit more common. That is yeah. high, but I think it's only one or two off of last year. Um, I think last year and this year closely together. I mean, if you're talking about these big bonuses, five of the eight historical signing bonuses happened in the last two drafts. So there's definitely a trend happening here, right? Some, something has changed with the mindset of draft picks. Well, it's it's a good point. I it's it's hard for me to quantify exactly, but I am hearing, especially this year, more and more that leverage is key in all mm -hmm. of this. These players that have any sort of leverage, whether they're high school players who have a strong college commitment or um, their college eligible or college players with eligibility left on their resume, um, like leverage is just key. There's really no way to get about get around it. Players with with you know that can go back to college ultimately hold the key to you know to the castle. And if they don't like where they're drafted or don't think it's the right fit, um, you know, developmentally, they yeah. They can, I mean. If we're Go talking back. Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz specifically, the top two, right? Who both went over slot slightly. Are, there's two. There, I think there's three ways to look at it. Number one, um, you need me right now, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, there's a there's a pretty quick path to both those guys getting into Major League Baseball uniforms. Is that incorrect to say? Really quick for Skeens, don't you think? Oh, that's super fair. I think Cruz is probably a little bit further off just because yeah. we do see hitters marinate a little bit more Paul Skeens. I, I, he, he signed under slot and he still broke records it, right. like quite a bit under slot still broke records. Um, and he pro some people think he even got more than he might have from different organizations because of the Pittsburgh thing. Like, it, yeah. like th these players do know teams that need to like, offer more, you know, rather than taking some sort of discounted, like Pittsburgh is not an or a coveted organization where players are like, okay, I will, I will punt a little bit of money to get in there. It's the opposite that if anything, he probably milked another, you know, $200,000 yeah. out of this maybe, you know? So, um, it, I don't have a good answer to your original point, but it is the, these players at the top of the draft do hold a ton of leverage and the money, gets uh, pushed around accordingly, specifically Washington. They went way over slot on their first three picks and then literally spent pennies on the rest of their draft pool. So Cruz specifically might've been like that as well, where he, he may have had some leverage. They knew that they needed to go over what other teams might have needed, you know? So are you hearing a lot of had to do it or he would have not, he wouldn't have signed? Because we didn't get a first rounder that didn't sign this year, correct? Um, no, and actually only one player in the top ten rounds, which make right. up the bonus pool, was unsigned. So I, I don't I don't want to label this as like it's a hostage negotiation. Like you picked us, you're gonna give me my amount or we're not gonna go. These teams and players slash agents slash representatives are all very clued in on what players are going to like what range they're going to go for. It's, it's rare that it's rare that two, the, the player and team are way far apart. And typically when deals don't get done, it's because of like post-draft physicals or something like that, mm. which we saw with like Kumar Rocker. Um, 
where the, the team is just a little bit caught off guard or d- doesn't really love what they saw in those physicals. Otherwise, this day and age, it's very, very rare for these, especially these bonus pool round players, but especially top, you know, first, second round type players to not sign with their teams. And like, you could look at it as like, it's a hostage negotiation, but really like there's just small thresholds of yeah. um, like money that they're probably like, like I guess what I'm saying is maybe Paul Skeen's got 9.2 from Pittsburgh. If he would have gotten picked at the the second pick by Washington, maybe that's the same number. But maybe if he falls down the board two or three picks, maybe that number is mm-hmm. um, drastically higher or lower. I, it, it's very hard to quantify the strategy behind these draft picks. So if it if it sounds like I'm kind of meandering, it's no, no, it's, it's very good. hard to quantify all of this. So well, let me let me throw another angle into this because I think this is actually a pretty interesting topic, especially in terms of how baseball money has been operating over the past decade or so. All right, Dan, I'm going to throw another angle into this conversation because I think it's pretty interesting. The uh, to me, the something I've tracked quite a bit with the NFL, and uh, you know, it's kind of a generational thing now for the past five to ten years. Uh, there's a situation with the Buffalo Bills right now where Naheem Hines gets injured on a jet ski. Every NFL contract forever has basically said, you get injured in an outdoor activity, right? Rock climbing, jet skiing, et cetera. You're, you've breached your contract. So the Bills now have the option to pay Hines whatever they want to, up to his full value or really nothing. They can pay him nothing in 2023. The difference between that happening 40 years ago Right. When those those same handshake agreements were happening. And right now is that the second it's reported that Heinz is injured on the jet ski, it's all over Twitter, NFL Network, all the official outlets are reporting it. And now the conversation immediately turns to the Buffalo Bills have to do the right thing. They have to pay Heinz his full salary. It's not his fault that somebody hit him on a jet ski, even though he was doing an activity that that breaches his contract. Heinz agent is on Twitter. The NFLPA is on Twitter, right? Everybody with, with enough power to make some change here is saying out loud to the millions and the masses of NFL fans, this is the way we think this should go. That just wasn't happening 10 to 15 years ago, okay? The Bills would have had to be able to do this all on their own, behind the doors, with the agent, with the lawyer, with the player, and a handshake agreement could just happen. My point in bringing this into this conversation is, Paul Skeens is the number one pick, okay? He wasn't the clear-cut number one pick. There was some back and forth. But if the number one pick has to come out and say, look, I'm going to a team I don't really want to be at, and I got 500000 less than the slot value, okay? That now becomes optics, and it's optics that the Pirates are going to have to deal with, really, for Skeens' entire career there, okay? Because it's a bad taste in your mouth, immediately speaking. And I know this sounds petty and, and lame, but I'm telling you right now, players have been released out of professional contracts because of Twitter, because of the momentum that happens on social media that compounds into a public relations nightmare for that team that then turns into a bad situation for everybody to to the point of no return. So if this is the very first interaction that you're having with a hopefully superstar player and maybe the ace of your franchise for the next eight years, and we'll add this to the, the equation, Isn't there a world, Dan, where Paul Skeens has an extension in 24 months, right? He comes up for half a year next year, immediately established himself as a number one pitcher for the Pirates, immediately. 
and they pull in the Atlanta Braves move and hand him a Spencer Strider contract offer and he takes it. So it's not just that they're negotiating today with him for this bonus to get him on the roster, to get him in the system, but they may be thinking about what's going to happen in 18 months when that same agent and the same player in the boardroom talking about $120 million for 10 years, right? So I think there's a lot more to this. And oh, by the way, you know, the name, image, and likeness part of this, the other availabilities, the other options he has by saying no to this contract at, at all. So I, I don't think that the optics stuff of this should be left out because you want interaction one with, especially with a, you know, a top pick like this to be as smooth as possible. You want the pirates and the fans of the pirates and major league baseball fans to think that this is a marriage made in heaven and if that takes an extra 250 on the signing bonus, to me, that's a no-brainer right now, especially with the value of six years of team control that these front offices continue to have, right? I, I agree. I think it's a good point on multiple levels, too. Like, specifically for the Skeens example, mm-hmm. he received under slot, but it was sti- – but, but let's – for the sake of the conversation, no one in the first pick really ever signs at slot – so he still signs a record signing under slot, but this the Pirates still spent under their draft pool. So from an optics perspective, right, teams can sign can spend up to their bonus pool, but you can also go over 5% of that bonus pool without major penalties. Now, to your point, the optics, if a team doesn't spend to their bonus pool, <clears throat> it does not look good to fan bases and across the league if they don't get there. So the Pirates... There were a a few teams, right, Dan? I I think I saw something about a couple of teams didn't even get close this year. So the Pirates and Mariners both did not spend to their bonus pool. (laughs) So, like, that's why this point is kind of intertwining. The Pirates, in theory, were... The Pirates, their bonus pool threshold were just over $300,000 away, which if you include the 5%, if they would have dipped into that 5% overage, the Pirates could have spent, in theory, another one over $1.1 million on players, which if you just, if you were to rank draft picks by total signing bonus, that would come out somewhere in the middle, around pick 50 in the middle of the second round. So in theory, the Pirates still paid Paul Skeens a record-setting bonus and went under the t- uh, they still spent significantly under what still they could cheaped have. out just say it still cheaped in, out in a way yeah <laughs> right so whereas the the talk coming into this was do the pirates have historically taken um a portfolio approach which we outlined in the last podcast is where you're at the top of the draft you you draft a lesser tiered player if you will who will sign under slot and then you take that savings and spread it out throughout the rest of your draft a lot of teams thought that the pirates might do that and do dylan cruz or take like max clark walter walker jenkins one of the high school guys um at an under slot pick but they didn't do that so i think the optics do come in here like they probably Mm -hmm. knew that they had to like go a little bit over on skeins relative to maybe what he could have gotten, but optically it's still a record, even mm-hmm. though they spent under. So I know I'm, I know I'm trying to like tie no, they, on multiple they struck points, a I think, with it. I they, think they, your optics point is very good considering yeah. like not only from a player team relationship, but just from a fan base, especially when we're talking about 
the the t- uh, the, the Tigers who we outlined spent the most at 17 mil. 17 mil to these teams is when nothing. investing in prospect capital nothing. is nothing. So for you to say we saved one, the Pirates to say we saved 300k on our bonus pool, which could have been 1.1 mil if you include the five percent overage like it doesn't mean anything to any fan that you should have spent it in my opinion so but but it only takes one report to make it mean something to the fans and that's the difference between today and 10 years ago right so i i I did very little work on the major league baseball draft because you took up the boatload of it right i i saw a tweet about how the pirates didn't go near the near their pool cap i saw it and i wasn't even trying to look for it which means a lot of Pirates fans saw it and a lot of Pirates fans know it. So they better have, have treated schemes properly because it's clear that they put basically most of their draft investment into getting this guy under contract and not really worry about much else. That's the way I read the Pirates draft right now. And that's fine because they're actually, you know, a team trying to turn a corner here. So they need superstars. They need, they need legitimate heading points here. But I'm glad you brought this up because there's a world where if schemes doesn't hit, Right. If he's a miss, well, why didn't they try harder on this draft? Why haven't they tried hard on any draft? Why are they consistently a top three cash spender in this league? It's just another example of the Pirates not trying. That spin can happen in a minute and a half, right, across the Twitter sphere. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up. And by the way, I'll, I'll give you the exact opposite side of this with Dylan Cruz, who goes to a Nationals team that has done tons of selling tons and literally are trying to sell the franchise, right? Everything about them is going backwards in a lot of cases. Superstars leaving annually, massive blockbuster trades. The team's been for sale unsuccessfully for two years now. They go well over on Dylan Cruz, a a superstar player they didn't even think was going to fall into their lap. And that becomes the conversation, right? That's what Nats fans are now hanging their hats on. It's not Patrick Corbin's shitty contract. It's Dylan Cruz, right? We got this guy in our lap. We went over slot on him, gave him a historic signing bonus for position players. And now he's the guy. Now he maybe becomes the face of this franchise, something we can all look forward to over the next 24 months. So uh, optics, right? And it costs what? An extra 300000 for Washington to do so? It's nothing. It's nothing to them. So I, I do think it's a big part of this draft process because there's no immediacy to it, right? They aren't drafting Bryce Young to become the day one starting quarterback like the Panthers are able to do. They're drafting a bit of a future and they can throw some money at a wall and make it all seem like it's going to be amazing. (laughs) Right. And I should, I should just backtrack a half step and say, this isn't a clean one for one transaction because teams do, if a team has a drafts, a bonus pool player, a a player in the bonus pool rounds that, and they're not a hundred percent sure that they'll lock him up. um, That, if you on if you don't sign that player, that money gets deducted from your bonus pool. So there is a little bit of jockeying if you're uncertain if you can sign that player. Um, you might take a a player unexpected to sign period in the later rounds to try and circumvent that player a little bit. But um, so uh, what I'm trying to say is I don't in this moment I don't even know if the part what the Pirates did was wrong. Like they could have had an ulterior plan that just never had to come to fruition. I yeah. think the reason that we even went to this point in the first place is exactly your original point, the optics of yeah. it and how it, the Pittsburgh it could Pirates look really bad in the end. It really right. could. And based on how they've operated in the past, we've, yep. it, this is not a, you, this is not a first time they've ever done this. This is, this has happened consistently for the past couple of years. So it, 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 it at least 
you know, it, it doesn't make you want to give them the benefit of the doubt is all I'm saying. So they might've, this might've been a good plan that like part B never even came to fruition, but you know, initially it, it, it looks like they kind of left some, you know, some room, uh, you know, some prospects or a uh, player talent on the table because they're just blessed with that. It, it is unequivocally proven that the teams at the top of the draft with those inflated bonus pools at the top of the draft that don't have to give those team, those players, the full slot value are at a significant advantage in terms of acquiring and yeah. hoarding the best prospects in a given draft. It just seems like the pirates missed out on that a little bit. Based and by on the way, for those of you out there thinking, but they signed all their draft picks, so it doesn't matter what they have left, right? That's incorrect. They drafted players specifically knowing that they could go well under slot on that player instead of taking somebody who was probably better, but was going to cost more. That's the difference. That's the conversation. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship. It is, we're not going to spend up to the 1.5 million we had left to go over the max and get to the 5% threshold. We're going to trip nickel and dime this process for the next 10 rounds. And we're going to do so by taking lesser players. And that's just a fact, Dan, right? They can say these players were all on their big board and this is exactly how they wrote it up and their script was, you know, was written out, but it's just not, that's just not feasible, right? They, they took lesser talent because it was cheaper talent, right? Likely. Yes. Likely. Yeah, that's Allegedly. the right answer. Allegedly. Um, Allegedly. One more point on this. Um, you mentioned there was one player in the top 10 rounds that did not sign. We did a, a preview of this draft, and we talked about how the college you know, situation, the name image like this stuff, definitely improved the reasoning to not stick on a, you know, sign a bonus and go to the Major League Baseball immediately. Are you surprised that only one player did not sign? in the current climate um no well i'm no i'm not surprised that it's a low number if that's the question mm -hmm. I, like i like i had alluded to earlier the dialogue between both sides at this point is so nailed down um that they i, I think it's going to be very rare going forward that players in the top 10 rounds do not sign outside of extenuating circumstances if i remember correctly on this one somebody went quite a bit over slot that they mm -hmm. had expected and they just flat out it, like he was sort of like a fallback pick if you will that um if another guy didn't get done they would have reallocated mm -hmm. a lot a big chunk of that pool towards um this player Caden kendall um who was the only player in the 10th round unsigned um so it's a good point. I know we talked about this in the past. I think a lot of the a lot of the chips are still in the air with this because of college eligibility rules surrounding the COVID years. Um, we we're not going to really see the true extent of the nil stuff um, for another couple of years, in in my opinion. So yeah, it's fair. It's coming. I, I do think it's coming. I definitely do think it's coming with some of these top programs. Just two. I know we're running out of time here. Two quick things I just wanted to touch on because they're kind of new that we started tracking this year um, mm -hmm. on the site. One of the most unique thing uh, we've talked before about how the MLB draft is so unique strictly because of the bonus pool. The other part that I keep surprising people with who I speak with about this is that players can get drafted more than one time. That's, mm -hmm. that's unique only to the MLB um, this year. 29 players who were drafted. This was their second time being drafted. 
two of those, it was their third time being drafted. Mm. Um, I only so originally unsigned and then went back into the draft or got drafted, got released, and then got drafted again. What's the process? Dra- drafted, unsigned, drafted, and drafted, signed. unsigned, so, drafted. Okay. Yeah. So, like, from that perspective, Brandon Sprout, who was the Mets pick last year, was also drafted. Sorry, Mets pick this year was also drafted by the Mets last year and was also drafted out of high school in 2018. So in 2018, he didn't. He drafted out of high school, didn't sign. Last year, drafted out of college, didn't sign. 2023, drafted again is what I mean. So three, th- there's. 29 players who this was their second time being drafted, meaning drafted once unsigned drafted and signed this Hmm. year. And two of those, this was their third time. Seth Halverson, Brandon Spro, Brandon Spro, a lot of, he was a first round pick last year. Didn't sign with the Mets did sign this year. Um, And there's interesting that he went to the same team, almost like they had the wink, wink situation figured out. Right. It almost never happens like that. Um, I mean, well, I should say it never happens where a guy who was drafted so high last year is then Mm -hmm. drafted again high to the same team. We do see this a lot with um, like a high school player drafted in like the 18th round. um, Sure. Goes unsigned, goes to college. Yeah, exactly. We see a lot of that. But um, I, I wanted to really highlight the Brandon Sproul thing because we a don't see that a lot and B he still signed a pretty big bonus pool. Like uh, back to our leverage point earlier, as you go on, your leverage decreases in theory, you're probably looking for a better landing spot and maybe less money. He basically earned the same bonus signing bonus where his slot value was last year. So, um, just some, just a little bit interesting. I had always wondered like how many of these guys are getting, like when a player doesn't sign, is it, is it because they're so high profile and they're automatically going to sign later? It, it, there's a lot to kind of be uncovered with that, but we just um, started that this year. And I think we're going to get some um, pretty interesting info from that. Once we look at it uh, um, from like a multi-year standpoint. So, uh, and then the other, one, go ahead, oh, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead, please. All right, the other thing I would just want to, we, we started tracking college commits this year. So um, from this perspective, we're talking about a high school player that gets drafted and then goes to college instead of signing with his team. This year, there were two teams that kind of got slaughtered by this, specifically Arkansas and Vanderbilt. Um, Arkansas lost six players um, that were drafted in the top 10 rounds, the bonus pool rounds. Four of those players were were in the first two rounds. Hmm. Um, Vanderbilt also, they're habitu- annually on this list. Um, but literally all four of the players they lost were in the first two rounds. Hmm. Three of those were first rounders. Um, Georgia Tech, Mississippi, UCLA were other teams that had um, multiple guys with three each. So um, just so- kind of goes right into the point I was about to make then. Can I ask you this question? Uh, I know you track a lot of hockey stuff and a lot of these other sports. With college players allowed to make make money now, should Major League Baseball teams be allowed to draft players and then and then have them finish out their college careers as they wish, while under their system still? So I've actually, I have seen this become like a like rumbles of a talking point recently. Mm-hmm. Where what is preventing 
yeah. a team from drafting a player and saying go to college will pay for your college or some yeah. or something like that. Um, if you want to eliminate the scholarship at like say that you don't want drafted players being held up, you know, taking up college scholarships from other players. Um, it's a really interesting point. Partic- I, I guess there's a lot of room for error there in terms of like oh, yeah. philosophical organizational usage. Differences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Specifically usage. We did, we literally just saw that in the college world series. So, mm-hmm. um, but it's an interesting perspective from, from de- like a developmental standpoint on, I mean, it'll never happen. In my opinion, it'll never Me happen. Too. I've just heard it recently. Uh, unless we have 15 second, first and second round picks go unsigned because they want to go back to college. That's when this conversation will really start to happen. But until, you know, right right now, college players are saying no and going to Major League Baseball. So there's no reason right. to have this conversation. I just think it's fascinating that it's it's kind of possible now. You know, the, the money side of it has been figured out now. Yeah, I agree. I think it's... Um, I agree with you. It won't and until some a major crop of guys does this. I don't mm-hmm. think it will happen in the short term. But hey, because then that ter- turns them into like a uh, you know a sort of like a minor league system yeah. um, in college and yeah, the nineteen year old pitcher making two point five million dollars to go to college. That's cool, right? right. And like, our, is a guy that just got draft is an outfielder who just got drafted who want needs to be developed in center field. Is he holding up a center field spot from a guy? who should be yeah. drafted in the upcoming draft as a center fielder. I don't know if that logically makes sense, but I think it, uh, it could yeah. cause a ripple effect of issues, but it's, it's least, a valid point. Yeah. It's at least a conversation to throw out there. Um, we're not going to dive too deep because we're out of time here, but are the angels doing the right thing? Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I personally can't find a direction I don't like the moves don't make sense. Like cumulative to me, mm-hmm. the timelines don't line up. I personally. Well, let me throw some multiple choices at you. Um, should they have kept Otani? Should they have traded Otani? Should they have kept Otani, but not done much else? Right. Just kind of held back. Should they have kept Otani and continued to add big pieces like they did today with Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez? What what of those three options do you think should have been the best path forward for the Angels for the rest of 2023? For this year, it seems like they're obviously. I'm not yeah, they're choosing this. three. They're choosing three. They're not they're even try- done yet. They're going to make they're another trying, move. Here. They're trying to go for it this year, right? So from a. Tw- 2023 perspective, like I can't really blame them from an organizational long-term perspective. I mean, they should have, they should have started tearing this down probably last year, but I do get, this is like a once in a generational player. You don't want to move him off your roster if you don't need to until the last minute. So like what is right in a vacuum versus like what is actually right is, is sort of different in this scenario just because of the player we're talking about, I think, but from like, I guess what puzzles me, Mike, is it seems like over the last two years, every move they have made was to try and push the pedal down when yeah. all of, when all of like the, the materials were like, didn't really line up to me. Everything like, else was falling apart. I agree. 
I mean, you sign you like the Tyler Anderson sign. Like you tried to make moves in the offseason, but none of them were like really great needle moving changes to me. Like it was all just stuff that was like, okay, this is like just sort of like a like a hollow signal that they're trying to like be competitive. But the longer this goes on, it seems like Otani just wants to hit free agency. Oh yeah. Yeah. regardless so like why I, I i it just doesn't align to me like we're they were trying to throw it against the wall everything against the wall to try and keep him there when maybe it was never in the cards to keep him there and then if he leaves like i, I get this year they're trying to go for it make the playoffs i still don't think they're a legitimate contender but if you want to sneak into a wild card spot good for you at the end of this though he walks you have a number of contracts that aren't aren't great oh, you don't awful. have a developmentally you don't have a lot and in, in the we talked about but this also, prior and, pod- but also let me jump in but also now you're expend you're expunging prospects to go all in for two months with otani now you're, now you're also emptying your cupboard even more for what's going to exist in 2024 and and, and beyond and that's my point I, i'm okay with them keeping them dan i really am i'm okay with them running the course like washington did with bryce harper I, i'm fine with it because i know the the monetary value that he holds just for the next two months, right? In suites and marketing and, and everything, right? In hitting 60 home runs in that uniform. There's a hell of a lot of money tied up to Otani in that uniform right now. I don't know that I agree with adding expiring contracts and giving up prospects to do it. I, I just don't think I can get myself there. Why? For a wild card spot, you know? Why? That, that That's what I can't wrap my brain around, Mike. And to knowing... Like they don't have a ton of high end prospects in their system. No. The last the, this year again, they focused on college players who are close to like I I read a, I wish I could give credit to this tweet, but it was basically a breakdown of how they have allocated their draft picks in the last mm-hmm. few years. Si- sort of signals they don't internally believe they can develop players, no. and that's our and that's our whole thing. It, it, like if you can't draft and develop players, no matter even if you catch lightning in a bottle and and have some moves that pan out, you're just not going to become sustainable long-term. And if, and if they're like, if they're literally dedicating multiple drafts towards this, like expeditious process to get people in and or trade, or just like look, uh, address issues via free agency, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. So is their GM a lame duck is, the owner meddling, should he sell? I, there's like this. Can, can I give you my, my hot take I, really here? Don't know. I think you're going to like this. Here's my hot take. Instead of even offering Shohei Otani the $500 million contract, okay? Instead of even making the offer, how about throwing 10 for, hmm, what's, what's actual, like, what's logical? Let's say 10 for 10. 10 for 10 for 15, a 10 year contract to either a Guardians or a Tampa Bay Rays pitching development instructor. You know, one the, the guy, the glue guy, right? The actual guys that are make or girls, I, I don't know who these people are, who are doing this on an annual basis in the Cleveland system, in the Tampa Bay system. Uh, to some degree in the Pittsburgh system who have pumped out a lot of nice pitchers and, and gotten some trade assets back because of them, right? Spend millions of dollars to wrestle away somebody important from those franchises who are literally holding those teams up. That, that, that is, a, you know it, you are a Cleveland fan. 
There is nothing more important to that team, not Jose Ramirez, not Francisco Lindor, not Manny Ramirez. There is nothing more important to the Cleveland organization than their ability to, to develop, find and develop, and then eventually move on from pitching prospects on an annual basis. There's a new name every year. That, that is how you do it. That is how you live in this world right now, whether you're the Dodgers or the Guardians. So I, to me, that's what has to happen. It has nothing to do with what player can they go find, how much money do they have to pay Otani. They're, they're broken. They're, they're phenomenally broken. And to me, it starts with the owner who still wants to make this an entertainment. This, they, he wants to make this a show, okay? And instead of actually doing what has to be happening and make this a corporation, a business where you develop from A to Z. So I'm with you, man. And I, I don't even think they should try at this point. I, I think they have to start over from scratch with how this, this, this team does business. I agree, and this could spiral into like a really lengthy conversation about player development and mm-hmm. analytics and and stuff like that. But like the, I I guess to put a bow on it, the moves they've made to me, like if they are trying to lure Otani back and keep him, the yeah. moves that they have made to me still don't put them in a really good situation long-term for him to want to sign there. So it, in my opinion, unless there's no chance he goes back there no. because he's seen how things play out, mm-hmm. there's no chance he goes back there unless there's just no other offers, which we know that's not going to be the case or they blow him out of the water. But I still think at yeah. a certain point, he's looking to win over make 60 million rather than 50 million a year. Right. But um, at a certain point, it's just, uh, to, to sorry to your point your question about why don't they just go get somebody because my short answer is the longer I do this the more I understand that it's not one person it's an or it's a whole organization yeah, it's a philosophy the, yeah. yeah the angels part of the rift was part of the rift with Joe Madden was that he sort of wanted to back off the analytics a little bit and that he, <laughs> it was it was sounding like their front office was trying to push them a little bit Perry Manasian came from um, the Anthopolis tree, uh, mm-hmm. Toronto, Atlanta, they, they've been heavily analytical teams for a long time. So it's, it's not that there are analytics already in there. It's an organizational commitment on how they communicate that to their players, how they give game plans, how they put that into usable action. And from, from an organizational standpoint, we've just seen the angels fail at that time and time again. And now some of that goes back to to investments in scouting and scouting and stuff like that, which we have seen is gutted. Mm-hmm. The angels are gutted. They have one of the, the, the smallest scouting departments in all of baseball. So the, the, all of these points together is where I like take a 3000 foot, you know, look at this thing. And I'm just like, where the hell is the direction? There's a few teams where I just really, when I look at what they've done and continue to do, I just don't see the vision that they have for the future with their, with their teams. Yeah. But I mean, they're yeah. smarter than me. That's why I'm in this seat. So. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, it's obvious they know this, right? So I'm not going to fault them for trying to add a bunch of pitchers and maybe a couple of bench players in the next week here, as we approach towards the end of the Otani run, I just, I don't have any faith in it. That's all. I just have any faith in it. And I, they're just wasting one of the greatest situations in sports history. That's all. Yeah, and they picked their direct. This was their direction yeah. as of what midnight last night when that trade came through. That was their direction. Like, there's no way you're training Otani now. And I agree with you. You probably even have to make a couple other moves, even if it's at you know at the expense of what we just talked about. Your your 
not great farm system. So uh, that uh, it's it, in one way, I'm like, no, oh, this wasn't good. They shouldn't have done it. And not, the other side of my mouth, I'm like, no, they got to, they now have to push forward and kind of really go all at it. But man, it, this is just a wild card spot. There's at least two teams in that division that are clearly better than them right now. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know. So happy gambling, sir. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks. Thanks.